here as a teaching series is built upon this idea that as a church family and as you as an individual, we would see so much more benefit in our lives if we could choose to move beyond the things that limit us so much, the fears that we have that hold us back from being able to do what we believe we are called to do. We want to live with no more fear. We don't want to just accept that being afraid of things is the normal. We don't want to put up with it. We don't want to accept it. Instead, we want to see that it is worth facing fear, that all fears are worth facing and finding the big ones that lock you in and lock you down, they're worth the time and energy to put them to death. Last week, we launched the teaching series with Pete, one of our pastors, starting the conversation with a fear of the unknown and how the unknown can keep us so far back from where we could be going. And that really, honestly, we're not supposed to live out of this fear of not knowing what's next, but knowing that what is next can be good. If you missed that conversation and the opener to the series, you can go to epiphany.com and find it, epiphanystation.com, and under the watch tab, you can find it. And it puts kind of the, the, the skeleton through what we've put this series on, how we've rested it on. Because there's always a core and guiding text of what we believe about what God is calling us to do. And the one for this series comes from 2 Timothy 1.7, which is God did not give you, did not give us a spirit that is supposed to be fearful and timid, but we are supposed to be able to live with power, love, and self-discipline. And through that, we're given the ability to face down our fears, to talk about them, to be open about them, to say that they exist, and then to deal with them. And then maybe this isn't something we talk about often enough. Like, it's not a jolly conversation, that's to be sure, but it, when it comes to the point that being afraid of something is just the new normal, like that's just commonly what to expect, that becomes easy street. But we believe that it's not worth living your life that way. And so that's why we're going to have a conversation today about a specific, very unique type of fear, which is our fear of confrontation. <laughs> now, the fear of confrontation comes from the belief that if we were to step into open conflict over any issue with any person, it wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't be worth it. That There's, there's more detriment in doing it than there is good. Now, I believe that conflict can be good. I love a bit of confrontation, but we've spent our entire lives trying to find ways not to do it. It doesn't matter if it's for a good thing or a bad thing. We can find ways to make sure we don't have to be the one to do anything. It starts like when you're in the classroom and you like the girl on the other side and you pass a note, say, fill in the box and tell me if you love me, instead of actually talking to them, because heck, they could say no, or they could say yes, and they definitely wouldn't know what to do. If you had siblings, you might have sent one to talk to the other because they were being a jerk. It might be passive-aggressive comments that you make in the kitchen first thing Monday morning. It might be gossiping to someone about another issue, and it might just be what most of us do, which is just stuffing it down and stuffing it in, and we, we belittle it like it doesn't exist. Now, the majority of you in this room have a, a great benefit to your credit. Those of you here, those of you watching at home online, you're Scandinavian. And Scandinavians are known for being really good at confrontation. Like, they love it so much. They just want the truth out there. They don't care about what's normal and hurting feelings. They're just going to talk about everything. But some of us aren't Scandinavians. So we want to try and catch up to you guys. So we're going to have this conversation all based around this idea that to have it, to engage in it, is better than not. The reason we don't engage in confrontation as much as we should because we're so sure it'll go wrong. We're so sure it'll blow up in our face. We're so sure that it's not worth it. And because of that, we can go years without confronting an issue in any sphere. Entire marriages can come and go 
without confrontation, being there to build trust and unity. And some of us learn often a bit too late that we could have had a much better relationship with someone that has since passed away if we just brought ourselves to confront what was wrong. We need to see the value of confrontation, the benefit of it, why it is good, why it is good for us, why it is good for them, and why it is good for you, why it is more important than the fear that stops us. There can be a million and one reasons that you choose to be a person of confrontation. Research shows that families who enjoy and relationships that enjoy good intimacy and trust have a healthy habit of confronting issues. If you want to excel in your career and workplace, people who are good at confrontation and conflict resolution actually are picked for supervision and managerial roles because, you know, people are jerks. And generally, research shows the people who are willing to do confrontation are happier. So if you just want to be happy, you want a good job, and you want good relationships, confrontation becomes essential. But any of those reasons sometimes aren't enough. They aren't enough to make you want to confront a problem. And instead, honestly, I believe we live in something of a juvenile fantasy that if we don't deal with it, it won't affect us. It won't affect the relationship. It won't affect trust. And it will just stay hidden and that will be fine. So I'm going to give you an even bigger and better, the best reason to be a person of confrontation far beyond anything you've previously considered. Something that if we engage in it will allow us to live more powerfully and more loving than we ever have done before. And it's all based around the belief that we have here as a church family that the single most important thing you can do with your life is to love God and love people. These are the two things that bring more power, more love, and more fulfillment than anything else in the world. But to do those things, confrontation is essential. It is necessary to be a person of confrontation to love God and to love people. So we're going to look at an account in history, a moment in which there was this beautiful confrontation in the church. The church that said it loves God and loves people got to fighting, which I think is weird because churches don't usually have any conflict. But Paul, this church planter and pastor, saw it necessary to confront. And not just confront, to really confront his boss about something that was done that was a threat to loving God, it was a threat to loving people, and my favorite part was a threat to the embracing of outsiders. We're going to be in Galatians 2, in which Paul confronts Peter. Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. Now, I just hold them for a second there, put some context around this. There was two groups of Christians back in the day. There was the newer ones, the newer part of the family. They were the Gentiles, the ones that God had just said, you get to be part of my family, part of the kingdom. You get to be my children. And these are these Gentiles who were not circumcised. Now, that might seem like a weird anatomical thing to just throw out there, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it was a distinction between the new part of the family and the old part of the family. And this is where we see the problem Paul confronted. It says that when he arrived, he would first eat with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James, Jesus' little brother James, came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy 
And even Barnabas, Paul's best buddy, Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, and that's all you need to know. Oh, go on, rip him a new one. Um, Because everything we have there is everything we need to know about why confrontation is a beautiful thing and why it is essential. In this one instance, what we see is the new believers, the people have just come to Jesus, and then some, the cool gang roll into town from the good old days, and they basically say, if you guys don't do this one thing, you're not in the family of God. And Peter acquiesces. He was all chummy, but then when these guys arrive, he's like, actually, no, you're not. Paul sees this, calls it stupid, and knows that he has to do something. Whenever we get to that moment where your heart starts beating faster and you get prickles up the back of your neck and you know that confrontation is possible, you have two choices. You can do nothing or you can do something. But something was happening in that moment that made Paul not just do something, he had to do everything. He says he had to. Had to oppose Peter because something was very wrong. And he goes on to explain it later on. He says, Peter, this is what you're doing. You're dividing the family. You're being a jerk. You're shunning the new ones and putting expectations on them that no one agreed to, that no one said was important. He summarizes it all simply by saying, hey, Peter, you're not following what we agreed to. You're not following the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, for us who love God and love people, the gospel is pretty important. The gospel was that moment in time where God said, I'm ready to make a new agreement with you that based on Jesus and Jesus alone and your belief in him to save you from your sins, we are family. We are as father and son and daughter, based on Jesus. That's the new covenant. It's the new agreement. It's the gospel message of Jesus. Now, that was an agreed-upon thing for Christians. Now, step out of this for a second. Take it out of the church. Take it out of Christianity. Every relationship group has rules, because every relationship group has agreements, ways that they say they will live and treat one another, And it's those agreements that we stand on that validate the necessity of confrontation. Because what we're not actually talking about here in confrontation is going and telling people they're wrong when they never even agreed with us in the first place. This is not even going and and shouting at people and yelling at them or even trying to change their mind. Confrontation that we find biblically is only put to us in the sense of confronting those who said they're about loving God and loving people. Anything other than that's not actually confrontation. It could be called evangelism, in which we seek to tell them the truth when they do not understand it. It could also be just war and conflict and argument and debate. But confrontation is for the church, like confrontation in your family. Because in your family, every family has rules. Every family has an agreement. This is the way that we're going to live. Maybe it's spoken about, maybe it's yelled about, maybe it's carved into the wall of like, this is how we're going to treat one another, this is what we expect. And if you don't follow the agreement as a family, you're going to expect to be confronted on it. Friends have agreements. This is how we're going to treat each other. We're going to have confidentiality with each other. We're going to have each other's back. I'll, I'll bail you out of jail. Whatever it might be, agreements. Workplaces have agreements. And if you break that agreement, you're going to find out from HR pretty quick that you broke that agreement. Nations are built on the idea that citizens will follow the agreements made for the nation to live free. Kids have agreements. They make covenants on the playground. 
And you'll see how quickly people respond when they break him for cheating and someone runs up and kicks him in the shins. And we all have these built-in relational agreements, and that's why confrontation is so essential. Because when someone chooses to agree to something and then says, nah, no, or I'm going to say I agree but not live, we're gifted confrontation. Peter agreed that he would live by the covenant, the new gospel message of Jesus Christ, and then decided to be a hypocrite. Jesus said, we're not going to live by man-made rites and rituals. We're not going to talk about circumcision being essential. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And Peter said, no. And Paul said, stop it. You're being a hypocrite. You're treating other people as second-class citizens of heaven. For what? A bit of skin on their penis. That's the reason that you're going to treat them that way. Peter, that's insane. Peter, you were the first one to get a vision from God that Gentiles could be made part of the family. You were the first one to go and offer Jesus to Gentiles. You were the man. And now, out of fear, because the old crowd rolls into town, you shun them and say they're not part of the family. Some of you are still reeling from the fact that I said penis in church. That's the ones that giggled just there. Some of you are more mature like me. And that's funny. Let's be honest. What's not funny is just how much we see this common practice in the church of treating others like second-class citizens of heaven. These days, it's not about what skin they do and don't have on their body, but it is often the color of their skin. We often do treat people as second-class members of the church Maybe because they were born a woman. Maybe because they're still a child. We maybe treat other churches like they're not as good as us because of the building they meet in, or the songs that they choose to sing, or the way and the form of worship that they hold to, or the Bible that they read. You see, there's all these different ways that this injustice of hypocrisy in the church still flourishes to this day, that we call ourselves followers of Jesus and then in an instant stop following because in that moment we say, I'm following him better than you're following him. If you don't follow him like I'm following, you're not even a follower. Jesus didn't say, hey, go be the church and teach people how to follow. He already taught us how to do that. But in the first few years, 17 years after the church was established, we already see a line being driven into the sand. Old, new, law, grace, circumcised, uncircumcised, and that's why there's a need for confrontation. Because it's wrong, it's very wrong, and it has to be dealt with. We think often, well, a good church, like a good marriage, like a good family, like a good workplace, won't have confrontation, there's no need for it. Me and my boyfriend, we don't, we don't yell at each other. Well, that's good for you. But if you're going to stick to anything good that you agree upon, someone has to be willing to not be afraid of confrontation. Because here's the truth about the human condition. We will always trend to what is not good. We will. You already know in your lifetime that what is good and beautiful and perfect and right does not tend to idly float to the surface. We trend toward disorder and chaos. We trend toward selfishness and evil. The church calls it the result of sin. Scientists call it the slow slide towards entropy. Social commentators will call it the collapse of civilization, all saying the same thing. Humans left to their own devices, relationships, churches, organizations left to their own with no confrontation will always go towards what is unhealthy. And where it is not unhealthy, where it's right and it's beautiful and it's good, it's not a sign of an absence of confrontation. 
It's a sign that they're doing it well. Sign that they know how to do it for the right reasons, that they understand confrontation to be a cure. It is to combat what is wrong in the relationship, in the family. And that is the reason that God gives for confrontation. It's the reason Paul gives. It's the reason the church has got for doing it. Because what is wrong should not be accepted. What is wrong with what we have agreed to, what is wrong that flies in the face of the covenant we agreed when we said that we would love God and love people, it can't stand. At that moment, we have to decide that maybe everything being okay and not talking about it is more important, or the gospel message of Jesus is more important. Because one thing that will always happen if you want to follow Jesus is you will feel confronted. If you're not reading the gospel message of Jesus and you don't feel personally confronted, you're not reading the right one. Because Jesus' message was always supposed to point at the most base and universal instincts that we have as human beings to be selfish, be prideful, be arrogant. And he says, no, that's not the way you're going to do it now. So we find ourselves consistently challenged on an individual basis and therefore should be challenged as the church When we see anything wrong with each other, with the church, in myself, it would get confronted that we would feel like we have to, like Paul felt he had to. When he saw Peter roll up in Antioch and behave like a hypocrite, he had to because it was very wrong. And if we don't deal in our lives, in our relationships, in our churches, what's very wrong, we'll eventually find ourselves not following at all, not following what we agreed to, leading others astray as we do so. This is the reason that we must value confrontation. If we do not, the gospel message of Jesus Christ will forever be spat on by injustice. And it'll be spat on by hypocrisy. And it'll be spat on by lies and fears and evil things. It is up to you and I, as we call ourselves lovers of God and people, a follower of Jesus maybe, that we would found our lives on his message We would find our convictions and our actions based on it. And when we do confrontation, we would present it as such. It's all Paul really had to hold on to. All he really said was, not Peter, you've hurt my feelings or you're not treating them nice. He said, you're not following the gospel message of Jesus. You're not doing it what you said you would do. So he finds himself being willing to stand up straight and confront everyone and say it's not right. Now that was Paul's moment. Paul had a few moments because Paul was the bomb.com. Because Paul was so awesome, we can read that and think, well, I'm not Paul. I'm not really got that place where I expect to go in front of like the bishop of the church or the first pope and be like, hey, you're doing it wrong. But for that reason, we dismiss and we just basically dismiss ourselves from having this call to confrontation. But the truth of the matter is, There's daily confrontations that you face. If you're around any other believer ever, opportunities for you to put the gospel message above anything else. Your moment, and I'm not going to make any friends for this, so let's just move through it and get through it as a family. Your moment might be when speaking with your child who says they follow Jesus and they're not behaving that way, and you choose to confront it or wink. It might be when you have a Jesus-following spouse who is not following Jesus in their actions. It might be when you see something in your church family that screams of hypocrisy, that you don't understand, that seems wrong. 
Your moment might be standing in front of your lead pastor and saying, you said something dumb, it was wrong, we need to talk about it. Your moment could be any time with any person where God leads you to the conviction that something has to be done because the message of Jesus Christ is more important than how you feel today. It's more important than your fears of confrontations. It's worth more to him and more to us that we would be people that live for this, that we would live for loving God and loving people, that we would choose not to back down because we were afraid of facing down what is wrong. As we wrap up our conversation, I want to leave you with a simple challenge, and I want to be really honest and obvious about this challenge. If this doesn't sit right with you, if I say these words and you're like, nope, probably shouldn't follow them. You should never take anything I say as gospel because what I'm about to say should rock your world if you truly think that you're going to do it. We are called, as we love God and love people, to confront what is wrong. To confront what is wrong. There is no secondary option. There's no plan B for your life. You're here to confront what is wrong. Whether you find it in the church or you find it in the world, the things that spit down on the gospel message of Jesus, you're here to do something about that. It is why you are given a spirit that is not fearful and timid. It is why you are given power, love, and self-discipline. It's not so you can have those things sit back and then just live cush. It is so that you will then use them. It's the spirit that was in Paul. It was the spirit that was in the church. It's the spirit that's within you as a follower of Jesus to go and do what others are afraid to do to go confront what is wrong with power, knowing that that's what you're built for, knowing that in your family and in your marriage and with your children and with your parents and with your church home, that's what you're here to do, to make sure that we're not slipping on the gospel message. You're also here to do it in a spirit of love, with your first intentions being reconciliation, your first intentions being for the good of that person, bringing them closer to Christ, not kicking them out the door. And lastly, you're supposed to do it with a spirit of discipline, which simply means not running up to somebody, kicking them in the crotch and saying, confrontation, and then moving on to the next one. Power, love, and discipline means you will see the good of confrontation and you will make yourself a champion of it because it is good for you and it is good for us. I want to give you three practical practices to make sure that you're not doing this like a jerk. The first one, if you're going to be a person of confrontation, and really this is in any arena. I'm speaking to the church here, but this is your marriage. This is your workplace. This works too. Number one, inspect. Inspect the person that is feeling confrontable. You. Own the fact that you're a very imperfect person, and there might well be not the most pure of motivations for you wanting to confront. Own the fact that there may be some things that need to be confronted in you first. Very difficult to fix a broken world when your motivation is selfish. So have it inspected. If you're a Bible-believing person, have it inspected by God in prayer and ask Him to do that. If you're willing to inspect yourself, you should be willing to do the second one, which is to invite confrontation. Now, this ain't, come at me, bro. This is, would you look at my life and tell me where you see something wrong? I say I'm a follower of Jesus. If you say a limp in my walk with Jesus, would you tell me about it? Who do you have that would do that, that would legit call out the crap in your life? Most of us don't. Most of us hide behind this facade of fineness, which is really just cowering in fear from being told and confronted. So a lot of us, we put up this wall of unapproachability. Really, it's just cowering in fear that there might be something that needs to be worked on. 
So inspect it and then invite confrontation and then you can become a champion of initiating confrontation. Get out there and initiate. Where you see what is wrong, do something and say something. Our workplaces are better for it. Your marriage is better for it. Your family is better for it. Your kids are getting raised better for it. But more importantly, the church will be healthier for it. Yes, it's weird. Yes, it's different. Yes, it's not your heritage. But yes, it is exactly what you're called to do by the spirit that resides within you. That you would play so much more important on the gospel message of Jesus that you would declare, we're not going to hide from anything here. We're not going to hide from anything that could be wrong. We're going to bring it up and we're going to talk about it. We're going to confront it because confrontation is a gift to us. A much needed gift to take on injustice and fear and evil and brokenness and division. We are ambassadors of Jesus. We have to face up to our fears and make him more important than they are. To love God and love people, period, means for Christ's sake, being willing to confront what is wrong. As we wrap up and take some time for some more worship here, let me pray for you guys. Father God, we thank you that you are so much better than us. And therefore, you set something for us to strive for. You set a, a desire and a goal in our lives to be like Jesus. And, and for those of us sitting here who say that's what we do, we're, we're Christian, we're, we're Jesus followers, we love God, we love people. I would ask you to inspect our hearts. I would ask you that you wouldn't allow us just to wander out of here without feeling some realization that something is to be worked on by you. That we have things in which we spit on the gospel. And that we would seek to have those corrected and changed by you. God, I ask for some accountability in our lives. That names would start to come to us of people that we could trust. That would tell us what's wrong when it's wrong for the right reasons. And that we would be willing to say and speak up and stand up when we see things that aren't right. God, help us not to live in fear of confrontation. Help us to see the beauty and the unity that can come from it. And help that to be who we are. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.